I'm Jeff Cohen. How did a secular Jewish writer in Los Angeles become an observant rabbi leading one of the most successful Jewish learning and outreach organizations in New York City? We're about to find out as it's the life story of today's guest, Rabbi Shmuel Lin. Rabbi Lin, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Saturday to Shabbos. That's certainly a title that's going to work well with my story and my journey, for sure. You and I both, because we grew up calling it Saturday and it became Shabbos, and you're here today to tell us how that transition took place. Yeah, growing up not knowing it was what, what Shabbos really was, and now not knowing what Saturday is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to that too. There's a lot of nuance to that. Yeah. Uh, let's take your story from the beginning, though. Give our listeners a sense of where your story starts. Where were you born and raised? Well, I, I grew many inches in the Upper West Side, but it wasn't the religious Upper West Side. My father was in residency at uh, Roosevelt Hospital, and um, I was born in Cornell Hospital, and we grew up on 69th and West End. Again, I grew many inches because I grew from zero to eight years old on the Upper West Side, and um, the great exodus from white Russia took us, you know, through Poland, Lithuania, into the Lower East Side, Brooklyn, Bronx, to... Uh, Palm Beach, Florida, of all places. So my parents moved down in 1978, I think, eight or nine. We moved down to Palm Beach, Florida, of all places. So that's where it started in New York City. Um, so I, I still feel like it's my home. The Upper West Side still feels like home. I remember the doorman's name, the whole thing, right? I remember those images are there. But my formative years are going to be in a place called Palm Beach. And so you're not the first Jewish person who made the trek from New York to Florida. So I think people will relate to that story. But give us a sense now from a religious perspective, what was going on Jewish-wise inside your home? Just to counter on that, I may not have been the first Jew to go from New York to Florida, but we're one of the first ones to have stopped in Palm Beach. <laughs> you usually get go further south to Miami that I get. But stopping in Palm Beach is like, you know, it's, it's bad for business, bad for your health. I don't know what it is. But the idea was going to Palm Beach, and it's a very, very, very wealthy place. My family did not come from money like that. My father was a surgeon, but of course, we were the poor people on the island. Only had a decent-sized pool in the backyard, as opposed to an olympic size and a tennis court and everything else. But the truth is, I, I moved to Palm Beach in the 70s, late 70s, where there were no Jews. You know, my home... There was no Shabbat, and there was, you know, Rosh Hashanah, and something happened, and we were dragged to a synagogue, maybe, and uh, Yom Kippur had some sense of belonging to it, and the Passover Seder, my parents tried, but in Palm Beach, when I, no one that I'm friendly with, no kid in my grade is Jewish, and you're going to mingle and really assimilate, go to the nth degree of assimilation, I suppose, even with a name like Lynn, it doesn't matter, because they all knew I was a Jew, and they kept me out of the clubs and the places there and singled me out. So that was really my my identity as a kid growing up there. And given that environment that you're in and the way you described that there weren't really many Jews and, and some of these signs you saw, do you remember your feelings as a kid toward Judaism, how you felt about the religion? I remember it very well. Hated it. Singled out. And our school would have cotillion dance classes. That's what you do in Palm Beach, where the bus would come and all the kids would get into their white gloves and, and go off to the bath and tennis club and the bus would school bus would come and pick them up and there'd be me and the other four Jews standing on the side waving goodbye because we couldn't go when I grew up there four of the five clubs just didn't let Jews very very open about it and if I would go for a birthday party there was a cat and mouse game I would go my friend's birthday party and they would call my parents come pick up your kid my parents would come and they'd pick me up and it's like it's amazing as a kid what you accept like that was my norm I was a Jew by the way you know people who were black had to be off the island by nightfall 
or the police would come and pick you up and take you to the other side into West Palm Beach. So that's what it was like. You know, you don't need a Jewish star. Everybody in, in Palm Beach knew I was a Jew. So I didn't have a very positive association with it at all. In fact, I tried to bury it and wanted nothing to do with it. And my bar mitzvah to me was bizarre because on the one hand, it was something. I felt there was something and it was unique. So I stood out a bit. I mean, it's not like people were, you know, throwing rocks to the window. It wasn't a pogrom. But I had a big party, and what, what other thirteen-year-old has a big party? And I was the Jew, so I had embraced it to some degree. On the other hand, I was completely mortified for all my friends to have to come into synagogue, and like I would have to chant something I didn't know anything about. So my Jewish identity was like push it aside. I never knew a Holocaust survivor. I never thought about it much. I was a surfer and a tennis player and a regular Florida kid, and that was that was my identity until later, obviously. It's crazy the way you're telling these stories about your experience in Florida. You would think this happened like 100, 150 years ago. Like, it doesn't feel like it could have been that recent. I think it's going to be shocking almost to some of our listeners that this is not that long ago that you're seeing these signs and being excluded and and all that experience. It's not that long ago that you were experiencing this. No. And I went to St. Andrew's High School in Boca Raton. St. Andrew's Episcopal Academy, where you had to go to church three times a week for attendance and genuflect. And, you know, it was Episcopal. So you had, had kneeling cushions. They made the Jews do it also, you know. Did that bother you at all? Even though you weren't super affiliated at that age, did it, did it bother you to have to do some of these things as a Jewish person, or is just that's what my friends were doing? Yeah, you joke around about it. When you grow up around anti-Semitism like that, or you're, you know, it's your norm. That's it. You deal with it. So what happens now after high school? You've painted a really nice picture of what your life was like growing up and what that high school experience was. How did you go about picking a college, and what did you think you were going to be as you were like in the later teen years? So going to college for me, the irony of all ironies is that my parents took me on the great Northeast. I was a good student, you know, I did well in school, I had good grades, and I can get into good schools, thank God. And uh, I went on the great tour of the Ivy League schools in the Northeast, but I had no desire to be in the snow and to be around northern snobs. I was a southern boy in a southern school, comfortable around white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, and at that time I had a cousin who went to Duke University, and Duke was like one of the best basketball teams in the country. And um, they actually had, it was like ranked number three or four in, you know, the U.S. News and World Report every year of like the top schools in the, in the country. And it's a great school. So I was like, I didn't want to go. I wanted to go to Duke. That's it. I applied early. That's all I wanted to go to. I want to be in the South. I want to be in great weather. I want to have great basketball, great sports, great tennis team. I don't want to be in some rinky-dink, you know, Ivy League school. The school's better anyway. It's ranked higher. So that's what I did. So I got in, and I, w- and I got what I wanted. I was there for 91 and 92 back-to-back national championships. And it was great academically, too. There are things in my life that happened there, major anti-Semitism and major changes than in my identity, as you would hope for anyone who's 18, 19, 20 years old, trying to think their way into their own existence. And I can clearly feel that excitement that you had for that school. And I remember that time also with how good those Duke basketball teams were. So I can see why you would have loved that atmosphere. You also just referenced the anti-Semitism that you faced. Is there like a story or two that comes to mind that really left an impression on you from those years? I mean, the stories that leave an impression for those years are not one or two. The one or two I'll share, you know, I joined a Southern fraternity, Sigma Alpha Epsilon, SAE. Okay, it's really a Southern fraternity. It's a Southern pedigree. Duke already, even though it's in the South, and even though it's in the 80s, was a very progressive school compared to everything else around it, because it's also competing with the Ivies, so it needs to... So there were some Jews there, and they were Jews just like me. I was shocked to find out how many Jews were actually at Duke, because you never saw them. 
I joined a really waspy, racist Southern fraternity. Now, Duke, in their, to their credit, the SAE chapter at Duke had two Jews, one black guy. Of course, we were all friends. <laughs> On my fraternity panel, they put a Waffen SS, like by my name. That was like there was a Waffen SS. When I was pledging the fraternity, they put in my window to my dorm room, uh, in Christmas lights, a swastika. I was like, I was shocked today. Like, like the low big deal, you know, back then. It's like, you know, just joking, Lynn, just joking. I take a joke. So at Duke, I was in the Southern fraternity and things like that happened. There was a, uh, a mixer with SAEs from South Carolina. They came out and they find out they had two Jews and a black guy in the fraternity. They started a full-on fist fight with, with their own fraternity brothers. How could you let people like this into the fraternity? And not all my fraternity brothers backed me up. You know, a lot of them also felt the same way. You know, we're stuck at Duke. We have to be progressive. But, like, what's a Jew and a black guy doing? And there were two things that, that happened. There was a, a rabbi in South Florida. His name was Ray Mayor Abramowitz. He was a card-carrying conservative rabbi, Shomer Shabbat. And he met me at some time, and he went up to my parents, and he basically was very brazen. And I think, I don't know what the conversation was, but the conversation sounded like this. Shkoyach, 3,500 years of Levium, finished. You finished them off. These kids are not marrying Jews. There's no way. Shkoyach. Right? That was basically what he said. And my father, like, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know, we don't, we're, <laughs> there's no way we're marrying Jewish. Right? Like, and uh, so he pushed them. And so he said, I'm the last hope. Yeah, this is before birthright. This guy runs, he still runs a program. His son David runs it now. And it's called JLI. JLI, I believe. Sorry if I get that wrong. Um, and, uh, and, it was before birthright ever had an idea of being birthright. This is this rabbi taking Jews, and he was a chaplain in the U.S. Army in the Holocaust, and he met his wife, and she was a survivor. I mean, really incredible people. And they just devoted themselves to every Jew that was in their environs. And um, they came to my father, and ba- my parents basically said, like, I'm your last hope for the, your kids. So my parents came back and tried to bribe me to go to Israel. I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to the Middle East. These people are crazy. I'm not, there's no way. I've got my summer planned. I'm surfing in, in, in Long Beach and Long Island, and I'm playing tennis. And like, like, I'm not going to the Middle East. Are you insane? And like, my parents like, we're going to withhold your tuition because they were guilty because they felt bad. I said, I, I, I called them out on it. What do you mean? You raised me in Palm Beach. What do you call it? Why, why are you dealing with your therapy on my cheshbon? Right? I got my job to do, and I'm doing it. I got my friends, and I'm, I literally had surfboards on the car, ready to go. And the rabbi was very smart. And he said, just let him come to the orientation. That's it. And if he says no, no. So I drove down to Miami thinking I'm walking in and walking out. And uh, I walked into a beautiful house, of course, in Miami. And I saw all these amazingly cool-looking young kids who were all Jews. They were all Jubins. They were tan, and they're, like, hanging out by a pool. And, like, an hour and a half away up north in Palm Beach, and I don't know anyone Jewish, you know. And all of a sudden... And so for some reason, I decided to go. And I went on this like three-week trip to Israel. And it did two things for me. It blew me away completely. Like, wait, the pilot's Jewish? The cab driver's Jewish? The bank teller's Jewish? The guy, I, I couldn't fathom. There were so many Jews in one place. And of course, you're like blown away. Of course, you're seeing Jews with guns. I'm like, that's right. That's, you know. But basically, ironically, it, it, did, it, it had the opposite of immediate effect, which is I basically came to the conclusion, oh, being Jewish in America is absolutely stupid. It's a total dead end. Everyone's a hypocrite. It's totally fake. Synagogue is ridiculous. Saying words. Why do we pride ourselves at a bar mitzvah for being able to read a language that we don't understand? 
when did that become the, 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 the yardstick of success? Aren't we like overachievers as Jews? Don't we want to get into all the Ivy League schools? And like, we don't get a Nobel Prize for like reading a language you can't understand. And that was the end all be all of Jewish education. And all of a sudden, like, these guys are speaking it and they have guns over their shoulders. So I basically came to the conclusion as a 19, 20 year old, like, if you want to be a Jew, pick up a gun, eat falafel, speak Hebrew, move to Israel and stop pretending in America. So when I came back to Duke, I kind of put a nail in the coffin of my Judaism as an American. I said, there's, the, like, there's no hope for it here in America. Leave it there. That's it. Ironically, it, right, it, you would have thought that it would have inspired me to do more. There wasn't anything to do with Duke Jewishly. And by the way, I wrote my college essay on why religion should be abolished. I was a total atheist. Like, religion's the worst thing that ever happened to mankind. And uh, so there I was, a junior, with somewhere in sophomore, junior year in college. And I had a major transition. It had to do with anti-Semitism. It had to do with the racism in my fraternity had to do with a few other events that happened, but a confluence of events that next summer and a certain class that I took by, it's interesting, there's a Jew who's a professor at Duke who like called me out. So this professor, his name was Bob Braverman, he had this class on leadership and I took it because of course I was a leader, right? I mean, you know, I'm a leader. He gave me an F on a paper. I'm like, I went to him like, you can't give me an F on a paper. He's like, I just did. I'm like, but you can't, like my GPA, like, he's like, I just gave you an F. He said, I said, it's a perfectly good paper. It's well-written. It's, it's, I mean, I, I researched it. And he basically said, yeah, because you're full of it. I gave you an F because you're full of it. Write me a paper that I believe is you. Write me a paper that's not fake. Stop faking it. Stop pretending to be someone you're not. So what did you do? You took another crack at it? Yeah. I had to sit there and like look at a screen of a Macintosh, you know, plus computer, whatever it was back then, and be like, how do I actually write a paper that actually expresses who I am, and here's the clincher, when I don't know who I am. And then Hashem started the wheels turning. I was at a summer internship at Bear Stearns for the summer because, you know, you got to make money and you got to, you know, be rich in life. And um, I got fired <laughs> from it. <laughs> it's hard to get from an fired. internship. It's hard to get fired for an internship that you got by nepotism, like we talk. <laughs> but but I wasn't. I, I was a bit of an iconoclast. I, I didn't like authority very much, and I also was stuck in a room cold calling. So I used to have a good time cold calling, and I would just cold call with accents. I would do very caricatured, really severe Russian accents, German accents. And then I was having fun, and I didn't know there's a human resources department that records your. So I got called into an office, literally, and they put a tape recorder in and played this. And the lady said to me, he goes, is this funny? You think this is funny? I'm like, well, yeah, by the definition of humor, I think this is actually really funny. But anyway, so I got fired. I called my friend, the same friend that I mentioned before. I said, what do I do now? He says, I don't know. I'm in film school. You want to come to film school? I'm like, great, sign me up. So that's literally how I got in the film. I was doing music. I always had music. I was always involved in bands. I was involved in a little bit of theater also. But like how I got in the film was because I didn't have anything to do. I couldn't tell my parents I got fired from an internship you can't get fired from. And then I'm like, okay, fine, sign me up. My next two years at Duke, I really went from totally waspy, preppy kid to grow your hair long, live off campus, hang around with the artists and the musicians. And I really had a 180 degree turnaround and it had a lot to do with that. Like, you know, who am I kind of thing. So I really spent my last two years deeply involved in the world of film and theater and music. I had bands. I, we started a film program at Duke University. So my last two years at Duke were really spent, focused, not, I get nothing to do with being Jewish at all, but focused on creating a voice and an expression. So I mentioned in the introduction about you 
starting in Los Angeles at one point, which would make sense if someone was starting to get into art and film, that that could be a place you could seek that. So is that how your story goes from Duke? Is that the next stop or is there a pit stop along the way? There's a pit stop along the way, which is really cool because I did not go to NYU film school properly. I did it in piecemeal in connection with my undergraduate degree at Duke because Duke did not have a film department. So when I graduated, I had to go finish up a certain project there. So I went to New York for a bit and finished up the film. The idea is I'm moving out to L.A. Of course, this friend, he was already out there and I was going. Now, the Jew friend I had from the fraternity, we were going to travel after college. And so we did, you know, backpack around, whatever. But the journey started in Israel. Now, for me, it was going back. Right? He had family in Israel, in, in, in Ramat Sharon. he had family, and we were like, that, that's where the journey started. What ended up happening was pretty amazing, because there used to be a, a travel book called Let's Go, and then it would be Let's Go Europe, Let's Go Israel, you remember what we're talking, right? And so literally, like, there's a hostel, how, how do you live on two and a half dollars a day kind of thing, right? And it's for students, so I'm reading this book, sitting on the plane to Israel, about sabras, and what Israelis are like, and they're horrible on the outside, and softer than anyone else on the inside. I'm like, yeah, right, and it's like, like and they'll invite you into their house, and you'll be friends with them forever, I'm like, oh yeah right anyway this lady sits down next to me and she's screaming at the steward she's late for the plane she's screaming at everyone screaming horrible 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 and she ends up sitting down next to me on the flight and then of course by the time we land she's brought me back to our house she's like wakes up her kids kids look you know we have a guest he's coming because my, my other friend was meeting me there whatever later like i'm in their house like it really was that and i and i had this crazy experience we stayed in israel for a while i don't remember going to yushalayim once tel aviv ramata sharon the beach the clubs the army i was this close to joining the army this whole family are all involved in film their son and i are working on a film project together right now he's a very decorated cinematographer and directed a beautiful movie himself he's a real deal and so I stayed, I stayed there for a while. And like, and I was going to get involved in the film business there. And like, this is fantastic. And uh, because I really felt like if you want to be a Jew, this is it. And it was really, it was great. And, and the people were amazing. And like, you're talking to people who've been in the army. They're so much more mature than a kid who's been to American college in a fraternity or sorority. It's a different world of connectedness, of awareness, of, of purpose, of identity. And for me, that was like a, it was a, it was a drug. It was amazing to be around. You know, my whatever, my career, my parents, everyone bribed me to come back to America, got me a sweet job in Los Angeles, whatever. Okay, so I, I, but that was my Israel. My Israel, like, I'm coming back here. Again, Jerusalem was not on the map for me. It was Tel Aviv. So I moved to L.A. and did what you do in Los Angeles, you know, when you're, when you're young and you're in the film business. And uh, you go through all those stages. <laughs> well, I know there's going to be a transition where the observance kicks in, but let's just take this little pit stop in Los Angeles. Are you thinking at this time that this is going to be your life. You're going to be a writer, a director. What do you think you're going to be and what's your career going to look like? Oh, there's no question. I mean, I'm, I'm in entertainment. I, I mean, whether it's going to be comedy, dramedy, drama. But I was out there. I was working. I worked in, you know, a couple of production companies and then said, that's ridiculous. Like, I don't want to read other people's scripts. I'm writing myself. So I need to make money. It was great. I was writing all day long, sitting in restaurants, like had my friends and everyone's on their way trying to build their careers. I lived in a house in the Hollywood Hills with some people whose names are well-known today and living that life. I, you know, there's a show, a very famous show called The Entourage, which was created by a roommate from, from that time and a friend of mine, Doug Ellen, and loosely based on what life was like when David Schwimmer, who was one of his, is one of his really close friends, someone I knew as well, but like one of his really close friends, and uh, became famous on Friends. That was my epoch out there. 
And um, so, like, what you know, what happened around that? How did that? What, what was it like to be to be, get? Now you're in the VIP room every place, and like you're young and you're Hollywood. But I always had a little voice in the back of my head saying, like, this is not the end. It's, it can't end like this. I'm reflecting on your story so far, and I'm always listening for that moment where Judaism is going to come back into the person's life. And I think you're giving that first inkling, like you're thinking you went out to Los Angeles and this was the dream and you're going to make it, but you have that inner voice. So is, is that what's starting to turn the story a little bit for you? Yeah. I mean, I think what, you know, you, you're drunk on the fun of being in LA for however long it was the year, first year, two years, three years, whatever it is, four years, right? But you start to see things that are not okay. And again, if you have a voice and you have a conscience, and I guess I wasn't on some noble quest for truth. But I, Yiddish in the Shama, I don't know what it was. It's something that it didn't resonate. Even when I'm in the bowels of it, I'm like you say the heart of it, there's no heart, just the bowels. I'm in the bowels of it, it resonated with me that there must be something else. And the people that I met who were like burnt out by the industry, they made the biggest impression on me. Like I sat with Phil Alden Robinson, the guy who wrote Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams is the movie that men cry at. No men sit through credits. And like everyone sat through the credits of that movie because every guy was crying. So I got to meet him, you know, and he was like, he was like, get out of the business, kid, you know, <laughs> like, he was like, what? I mean, you just wrote like one of the greatest movies of all time. There's no more deep a story that I would want to tell like that. Feel the dreams is baseball. It was funny. It was sad. It pulled at your heartstrings, you know, he's like, get out of the business. <laughs> so like those things actually made a big impact on me. But I, I, I there is one area of, of my, my journey out there, which really, really, again, Yashem just like, you know. You know, the O.J. Simpson trial. So I was in that trial. How so? So I was working at a restaurant, a restaurant called Mezza Luna in Brentwood. And that's where it all went down. And I was working there. And I got fired from that job, if I remember correctly. I got fired that job because I got in a fight with the, with the Italian manager who said something anti-Semitic to me. I think he like wanted me to work on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. And like, I didn't care. I wasn't keeping anything. I wasn't even going to synagogue. Right, I'm Russian name Kipper, but like that guy is not going to tell me whatever. It degenerated in some stupid, you know, Italian Jewish, you know, kind of thing, and um, I got fired from that job. And the guy who took my job, Ron Goldman, was the victim of of the crime over there. So I knew all those people. I'm like too close for comfort. And then some other crazy stuff, friends dying of overdose, like crazy things like that. And I was like, what? What am I doing? We're like, what am I doing in my life? And I'm not moving towards telling stories that I think make a difference. And so I really had a lot of existential questions about who am I, where I want to go, what kind of relationship I want to have. I didn't see any healthy relationship anywhere, nowhere. I saw just decadence and depravity and stupidity and superficiality and nothing. I was searching for it. I was in Palm Beach for Rosh Hashanah. I guess I went back to visit family. And um, the synagogue that my parents had, my father got very involved. He got very, very involved in his Judaism after I went to college, after I left. And um, the synagogue they helped build there. And they were doing shiputzim, you know, renovations. And so the, the service, the Rosh Hashanah service was in the church, <laughs> which I think is particularly funny because, like, you pack a church in with Jews with makeup in September and humidity in Florida. It's just not going to go well. There's a giant crucifix on the wall, and they covered it with a sheet. But they had to open all the windows because the air conditioning didn't work. So, like, I thought this was just the most brilliant comedic experience ever because the sheet would, like, the wind would blow and the sheet would waft up. And then, you know, the guy hanging from the cross above the rabbi trying to give the sermon. I'm like, this is, I like like taking notes. Like, this is really great stuff. I'm going to put this in the sitcom one day. 
but I remember that at that point I did I did for the first time in my life hear that Rosh Hashanah is actually two days. So I'm like, this is like what a disaster. It's bad enough you suffer one day of this of this ridiculous, you know, ritual, uh, blowing a ram's horn. I mean, like you know, and then uh, and then there are two days. So it's interesting. My flight was supposed to go back to L.A. on second day Rosh Hashanah. I changed my flight. I changed my flight because I wanted to sit on the beach and think about life. The flight I switched to left a few days later, and uh, it lost an engine over Texas and almost, and went down. And there was a lady screaming behind me, you know, up to the heavens, Daddy, I'm coming. And like, it was like, it was people thought it was the end. And like, my first conversation ever with God was like, Thanks a lot. The first time I did something for you, I'm going to die. The plane that took off on Rosh Hashanah got there, no problem. And now I'm going, like, you know, what's that about? Like, and I'm like, Wait a second, I'm talking to someone I don't believe in. It was like, Really? Like, I really went through that. I landed. And I was hip and living in Los Angeles in the cool area, which actually was right near all the religious Jews. And we were all sitting in our cafes and, you know, all full of ourselves. And you would see on Saturday mornings these people in black hats scampering in the alleyways, you know, in and out of doors that you would never walk into. And my friends would always point them out. We'd see them. Okay, it was like, it was like you know, there are palm trees and there are religious people. It's like the background. And that Saturday morning... Saturday the Shabbos, right? This is where it happened. That Saturday morning, I'm driving to meet my friends at a cafe on Saturday morning and parking my car, and there was a shul. I have no idea why. I don't know. Nichnas Baruch Shtus, that's what they say in the Gemara, right? Just when you do an Avera, no one does a, a, an Avera, a sin, without a Ruach Shtus, some sort of, you know, impure spirit overtakes a person. This is the opposite. I don't know why I walked into the back of the shul. Just peek my head in. It was like being transported to 18th century Poland. There's a guy in a big furry hat in the front, and this guy, you know, big long coats and beards. And and I went in, and I was ready to leave very quickly. And there were two very well dressed guys in the in the back, and uh, they took one look at me like, you know, they are looking for the signs. Like, oh my gosh, who's this guy walking in in the back of the synagogue? He doesn't belong here. And they came right up to me, and their names are Eric Brand and Rob Kurtz. Their names are Eric Brand and Rob Kurtz. And they started a conversation with me, and I was like, "Why do these, you know, why do these people talk to me?" The rabbi came up, "Hello, hi," you know, Rabbi Rabbi Chapnik was a kirushul, and I walked in. I couldn't run out because they didn't let me go, and I ended up going to they like, you know, you're going to come to our house for lunch, and you know, you you're someone in Hollywood, you can name drop yourselves. So they were writing to you on the Cosby Show, and they just made that very clear to me very quickly. What do you do? I'm like, I'm a writer. They're like, oh yeah, we're writers too. I'm like, wait a second. These are nice-looking, young, clearly successful, funny guys in synagogue. What the hell's wrong with them? And they, like, wanted to bring me back to their house for a meal. And I went back to their house, and I couldn't really put together what I was seeing. Like, what were they reading from a, a Torah and, like, washing their hands? No soap? Like, why would you wash your hands if there's no soap? That's how, that, that's how far away it was. <laughs> But I couldn't get over it. Like, you know, their wives were there and they were like normal and funny, even though I found that they're wearing other people's hair on their heads, which I thought like I should create a distraction and let them escape because they're clearly illiterate and and abused women because that's what I thought. But yeah, they're like totally self-actualized and great and funny and normal. And I just couldn't put it together. That was the beginning of the end. (laughs) I was like, you know, it was not overnight, but I met these guys. And now that was Shabbos Shuvah. And on Simcha's Torah, I was eventually set up to have a meal at Rabbi Graydon's house, who's a Rosh Hashanah in Los Angeles. Because I asked these guys, that whatever, they called me, I didn't want anything to do with them, but I had questions, I had good questions. You know, I'm not a dumb guy, so I, I'm like, this stuff is crazy, you believe this because something happened to you in your childhood, and that's why you need this as a crutch. 
But they're like, listen, there are answers to all these questions. And I grew up like you. We get it. And we did this. Oh, no, this is an amazing thing. Shem is so incredible. I had a good friend in Los Angeles. We were in film school together. His brother had gone crazy. Went to Vietnam, went to Jerusalem, never came home. Nuts. Turns out he was just a regular firm guy in learning yeshiva in the mirror, right? But in our, in our, in our language, he was insane. He was this wacko, crazy, you know, liberal college student who went to Far East and never came home. I just want to stop you for one quick second. So I know we only have about 10 minutes left. So I want to give you a chance, like how you got to Israel and then like how it accelerated into the, the organization and, you know, however much you can get in. Because I want right, to respect I was, your I time. You, I was leaving it to you to pace me, Jeff. Sorry. So that the end of that story was he called me and says, listen, they're making me go to the Orthodox community for, for Yom Kippur because my brother's coming in here. We have to move to the Orthodox community. He said, please, will you come with me? I'm like, okay. And we went back to that shul. And like when I heard Rabbi Chapnik and his boys... And his father, when I heard him and his boys singing Kol Nidre together, I totally melted. That was the beginning. I met Rabbi Graydon, and I started learning with him. There's a collection of Masil Shasharim tapes out there that he set over, I think, for women in Los Angeles in the, in the early 90s. And he talks about this young man he's learning with who asks all these crazy questions and does all these crazy things. That's me. And it was slow. It wasn't overnight. But a year later, I found myself at Mechon Shlomo in Harnof. But people ask me how I became religious. The answer was I fought tooth and nail and lost. But like I was open enough that I was going to hear truth and see it and see people and see the lifestyle. It was slow. Lots of stories in between. Never thought I'd end up in outreach. Right. That's what I wanted to ask you, because as I said in the introduction, you're a writer, you're in Los Angeles, you find your way to Israel. So how do you go from that? I see that Judaism is now turning you on and you're, and you're becoming observant. How do you now transition to outreach? I went to Israel for a year came back, worked on some movies, decided I got to go back again quick, you know. <laughs> and uh, I met my wife. And really, my wife comes from a, a real Aish family. Um, my wife's brother is an Aish rabbi, was an Aish rabbi back then, started at HUK. And, uh, and was, you know, the whole family, their whole family were very traditional in England, but grew up in, in, in traditional and had real traditional values, nothing like me. To, to me, they were Haredi, for that matter, right? But of course, they weren't yet. And, and the whole family, has really they really grew in their special way. And so we met, you know, we met after, uh, that's my second year over there, and I was 27, and she was finishing a degree in Cambridge. And my mother-in-law, when she got over the shock and horror that her daughter is actually going to marry an American, her worst nightmare, <laughs> um, it was very clear that my wife had to finish her degree up, and we had to go to England. I had tutors when I was at Mechon Shlomo, and they were English Hevra, and my tutor was also moving back to England. They were starting a kill. And he said, listen, I was going to go and write a movie while I was there and work and then go back to L.A. My wife told my rabbi, Rabbi Gershenfeld, from Mechon Shlomo, that whether she liked me enough or not to marry me, she decided she was marrying me anyway, but she didn't want to marry me because she did not want to marry a Hollywood guy. That's it. She doesn't want that lifestyle. And he promised her that I wouldn't be. Now, I don't know how he can make such a promise. Didn't ask me. But he said, he said, he's not going to be. <laughs> and my wife and my rabbi conspired. I moved to London, and I was very involved. I was in Kailo there. I stayed there for two years, because these guys, the, the Hevra Kailo there, they took me under their wing. They raised me, not just a Baal guy. They turned me into Ben Tar, Baruch Hashem. How to learn everything properly. They taught me Yiddish, took my German, changed it into Yiddish, exchanged it, sent me back to the Mir for five years to learn by Rav Asher Arieli. In that process, when I was there, we came very close with Rabbi Akiva Tatz, who was, had just moved to London at the same time. He became my neighbor, and we became very close. And he really had a major influence on me as well to go and to teach and to make a difference and use my story and use my background for L'Shem Shemayim. 
I loved learning and I loved it. I loved Torah deeply. And I felt like, you know, in the back of my mind, like I needed, I want, I was always looking for truth and wanting something to say in life. And so I really packed up the film career at that point and went back to Shalim, learned in the mirror for five years by Rav Asher. And, uh, and with the understanding with Rabbi Gershenfeld, with the direction of the Rebbeim that, 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 I, that I turned to at every major decision, that at some point we got to do something crazy and we got to go give back and take what the Rebbeim Shalom gave us and, and, and use it. The Chavetz Chaim says in Torah Sabayis that if you know it's your mitzvah, it's your mitzvah. The idea was to parachute behind enemy lines and drop ourselves in and attack the, the university age demographic where there were Hillels and there were Chabads, but there was no one that was presenting a compelling, intelligent approach to Yiddishkeit, where students have a chance to interact on an academic level, to meet people, to meet leaders, to live in the questions and experience things that are powerful and that will be commensurate with everything they're getting in an Ivy League campus. Plant seeds in a kid that want to ask a question, wait a second, what is this thing I come from? What does it believe? Why is there a prize-winning scientist with a yarmulke on his head? He believes in the Big Bang. How does that happen? How do poets and artists, and how do we understand what's our philosophy? What are the Jewish people about historically? What are the experiences that can... We do Poland trips, Israel trips, to Spain. I've been going to Spain for years. Going to Poland for years. What can we do to shake it up and really rock the boat and give Jewish kids a chance? Um, and that's what we started in 2004. I moved to Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania. But I, I do want to, in the time that we have left, at least give you a chance to mention the organization you're leading now, where people can find you, and how they can get involved. So the organization we started originally didn't have a name. It was called the Maimonides Fellowship, Maimonides Leaders Fellowship. And two years later, we became Ma'or, under the guidance of Rabbi Beryl Gershenfeld. And Ma'or started, started to grow. Really, in 2004, it started to grow. But the name came in 2006, I believe. And it grew, encompassing 20, 21 campuses. And the Maimonides program was really the central figure of that. And like, we, like I described, and trips and Israel trips and Poland trips, really a wonderful organization of, of, of guys who, people, guys, families, women also, Moisa Nefesh, the kids of Moisa Nefesh, going out there and doing it and creating an, a compelling and exciting brand of Jewish programming. And so, Baruch Hashem, a great relationship with the university. Tons of alumni in New York City, tons and tons and tons. I kept going and going and going more and more and more. Finally, it's like, we got to do something in New York City. It's time to service the alumni. It's time to move it to young professionals. I personally felt the goalposts were shifting in terms of impact demographic as well. Social media starts and, and then everyone gets dumbed down five years. So what a college senior, junior and senior were talking about in 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, how do you know that God exists? How does the world work? What's true? What's not true? What's moral? What's immoral? It's all relative. It's not. Those conversations weren't happening. More, it's like, you know, how do I work on my Facebook profile? But um, I ended up going to New York and more and more and more and more. And the idea was combined with a relationship with Birthright where they were desperate for retention and continuity. And you give something for free, like they say in Kashri's Kabbalah Kachpolto, the way it goes in is the way it goes out. If you give it for free, it goes out for free. And they were desperate, and I think in fairness to them, they looked at their numbers and said, wow, our alumni from Birthway who go to these Maimonides programs have more retention, they get more involved, they continue with more strength and more commitment and loyalty. So we had this crazy partnership 
because um, the the family behind what's today Olami was the name of my organization today. You know, the head of it is, is the Wolfson family. They're the main funders for, for Olami. They were funding us back then and always been supportive. And they had a project with Birthright in New York City and basically said to us, more, come in and be the engine under the hood and let's make programs for Birthright. Let's leverage that and let's build New York City and let's go for it. And we did. And that was eight years ago. We landed in New York City in Greenwich Village on 13th between 5th and 6th. And right before COVID, we decided to, you know, with our partners and the idea of globalizing and connecting so many organizations like ours under a brand of Olami. So more Manhattan morphed into Olami Manhattan by name change, but the same engine, the same people, the same goal. And um, we, Baruch Hashem, have been able to build a really great community and vibrant programming every night of the week in the village. We're packed every night. We have trips all around the world. We're doing three trips to South Africa this year. There's so much demand. Baruch Hashem, amazing stuff. We're doing what we can. You know, we were building a little Tevet Noach in the Greenwich Village kind of thing, <laughs> trying instead of bringing two by two animals on, we're bringing Yidden one by one, two by two, three by three, however we can get them on there. We want every Jew to have a chance at, at loving and appreciating and finding their own voice in their in their Yiddishkeit. And uh, so that's that's the goal. I just have to say, from all the interviews that I've been doing for Saturday to Shabbos, yours has to be one of the more remarkable from what your experience was as a Jew growing up in Florida and even how you felt about it going to Israel and that it maybe gave you that reverse feeling about even becoming religious, where you ended up, it's really remarkable. So I just have to say thank you so much for inspiring our listeners, for sharing your story, and for appearing today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.